Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Kyle Strobel returns. Kyle and I talk a little bit at the beginning about Jean Vanier and some recent revelations about some of the sins that he committed as a leader, some of the just awful things that has come out that he has done uh, after his death, actually, that these things came out. But we talk about that and the importance of leaders who take responsibility for their authority, who follow Christ the way that they're called to. And so it's a little bit of a continuation of the first conversation Kyle and I had uh, last year. And then we spend the most of our time talking about contemplative prayer and spiritual disciplines and what are some mischaracterizations or misunderstandings that evangelicals have had about spiritual disciplines and what are some ways that we can think about it both in light of the Christian tradition and even scripture itself, of course. So we talk about that. So I hope you'll be encouraged by that conversation. Church Grammar is brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about all of their latest offerings. I want to make another plug here for Baptists in the Christian Tradition, edited by Emerson, Stamps, and Morgan. That is a great book to help you understand how can you be Baptist convictionally, but also look at the great tradition, look at the patristics, look at the great theology and theological method that's been handed down over the years and incorporate it into the way that we understand and teach theology. We're also presented by CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out about all their latest offerings on study Bibles and other types of Bibles. They just released a verse-by-verse, which is one of the most uh, premium, beautiful Bibles that they have produced. So I recommend that you check that out. And now here's my conversation with Kyle. But first, the man, the myth, the legend, no big deal. Kyle Strobel, welcome back to Church Grammar. Hey, man. Thanks. Good to be here. We were, uh, last time we were together, we talked about your uh, Way of the Dragon, Way of the Lamb book, which I have continued to uh, recommend to anybody who will listen. Um, mm-hmm. I had uh, two freshman guys who want to be pastors reading it uh, this mm-hmm. past semester, and both of them were super uh, challenged by it and encouraged by it. So thank you again for writing it. And hopefully oh. people, if you haven't noticed by now, I think I'm sure I've mentioned it five times on the podcast in the last year. So uh, <laughs> grateful for your work there. Oh, thanks, brother. I appreciate it. So we're going to talk about uh, your new book uh, here in a few minutes, but I thought, um, you know, kind of dealing, you know, kind of a second part to that first conversation we had, mm-hmm. thinking through, um, you know, Jean Venier was one of the people that you interviewed in the book. Yeah. Um, and so there's kind of an opportunity now for you to kind of reflect back mm-hmm. on that in some ways to wrestle through it. Um, I don't think anybody's blaming you <laughs> whatsoever for, you know, sure. for, and, and the way that you and Jamin, I mean, immediately kind of publicly said, hey, you know, we do not condone, we're, we're as saddened by this as everybody else. So how are you wrestling through all that in terms of personally and with the book and just the, the fall of leaders, uh, you know, as you're writing a book on power and authority? So, yeah, you know, it was, it was devastating to us. You know, the timing was devastating. Um, we had just finished a pastor's conference that day. I literally finished the conference with a talk on basically how to discern wolves in sheep's clothing. Mm. And that evening, we found out that Vanier was, you know, had a 35-year-long, you know, sexually abusive background where he was using his spiritual authority to emotionally manipulate and scare and cover up. And um, 
and it, we were just devastated. I mean, it's, you know, um, you think of, I can't imagine for these women because in his world, I mean, the guy was an absolute giant. Right. And it just strikes you some of these other stories we've heard about this where, you know, women are put in these circumstances where they're, they're worried that if they come forward, what will be the ramifications for this person's ministry, for the kingdom? You know, suddenly like the spiritual stuff gets gets in a really gross way kind of infused into it. And and so, yeah, we we it, it was very difficult for us, um, obviously nowhere near as difficult for us as it has been for the people closest to him. And obviously these women, um, I mean, there's Jean Vanier centers around the world that are no doubt in meetings right now <laughs> trying to figure out what in the world to do. And, you know, when we found out on the weekend, um, on Saturday, Jamin and I talked the, the day after the news, the news broke at night here. And it was the day, the, the really Saturday mornings when everyone started hearing about it. And by Monday morning, we were on with our publisher asking them to pull the book. Um, and so we we're in the process now of rewriting the book, um, not just to delete the stuff with Vanier, but to wrestle through how do we navigate these things? And, you know, I, I, we have wondered, you know, Jamin and I, as we talk about it, one of the questions we have for ourselves is, did we miss something because he didn't fit the normal bill? And so, and I think, yeah, I think that could be true. You know, we have a grid in our context and it's like, okay, toxic leader, they're doing these sorts of things, right? They're, they're looking for power wherever they can get it. They're um, kind of relationally abusive in terms of how they just relate to basically everyone, tend to be narcissists. Tend to be, and Vanya just didn't fit any of those things. I mean, here's a guy that devoted his life to caring for people with, with radical disabilities. Like that's not the kind of rise to power you think of. And and yet, you know, there were some things with Vanier that, that you know, we we kind of looked the other way because his life seemed so profound. Um, obviously, he was the most theologically different. Um, we would have had the most theological problems with him than any other person we interviewed. Um, and we made clear in the book, look, we're not interviewing these people because we, we agree theologically with everything they think or even a lot of what they think. We're just looking at this slice of the thing that we think they get right. And, sure. you know, but there's some things about his even the way he stood aloof from the church, you know, the move to a kind of parachurch thing where he was kind of seen as a saint. I mean, he was literally called by people a living saint and he didn't correct them. Hmm. Um, and you just begin to wonder, like, in his context, is there a, just a different form of the ton of narcissist, toxic leader that we just we're not, not familiar with and therefore missed or something like that. So yeah, we're used, a lot to, the, of what, we're used to the mega church pastor who's like obviously building his own platform, obviously taking yeah. advantage of his power, obviously, you know, caring more about the stage and the podcast downloads, like that kind of stuff is, is a lot more obvious to us here. Totally. Yeah. And so it, it's forced us to really grapple with maybe there's some even more fundamental things. Um, you know, one of the things that struck us was inability to have honest community. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I just wonder, cause that's going to be true for those, those, those people you just named, right. The kind of high level platform building narcissists, they can't live in community either. They're not known by anyone, mm -hmm. but it looked like that was probably true with someone like Vanier in an interesting sort of way. Um, and so, yeah, as we've, as we've thought of it, this is, this is what we've now had to wrestle through more and more. And so we're hoping to kind of redo his chapter entirely, obviously, but then also rethink the the conclusion 
and, and as maybe a kind of call to what does it look like to discern these things at their deepest level, at the kind of roots, the kind of ground level, so that we can see them before they – because we the whole time we've talked about this book and we've written the book, we've been we've been convinced and we've been trying to argue that this isn't just a kind of toxic leader platform builder problem. Like this is all of our problems. And we probably do a better job talking about the leader <laughs> than the average, you know, I don't know. Um, average person in the pew, so to speak. But um, I think this gives us an opportunity to kind of name how can we see not only in others, but in ourselves, what is the foundation that gets built? And maybe we never build it all the way up to the top to look like these people, but it, it's still being built and that's a problem. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, if you even think about, you know, obviously, like you said, there's the uh, obvious uh, American capitalist marketing machine that, that just is easy sure. for us to see. But yeah, I mean, you know, a, a tribesman in the middle of Africa can abuse his authority in many of the same ways, right? It's, oh. you know, if you have an authority or leadership position, regardless of what it is, it, it's in your home with your kids, right? Whatever it is, oh, there yeah. are always going to be those things because of sin. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting the way that you put that though, that, that it's easier to see in our own context than it is if you have kind of an eccentric guy somewhere else who's again mm-hmm. devoting himself to something totally different like he seems like he's he's shaking off those things not putting them totally. on yeah yeah that's what made him so different and that and it's in many ways so devastating to so many i think yeah um, yeah well uh, and you notice uh, my my texan inner texan came out when i said veneer jean veneer yeah. I got jean right but then von <laughs> just could, for some reason uh couldn't register in my brain so when I was uh, when I was in junior high, I intentionally got rid of my Texas accent as much as possible because I thought it made me sound dumb. Uh, but sure. I can't take the Texas out of the boy, you know. So, <laughs> so. but anyway, yeah, a, a lighthearted uh, ending to that, but a really tragic thing. And, and I'm thankful yeah. for again the, the ministry that you and Jamin are doing in the way that you are pointing these things out, and then even handling, you know, in, in this in, in this situation, handling somebody who's in your book who you held up. To say, yeah. okay, yeah, I mean, but this is part of the point, right? Is that you can hold these people up and it doesn't mean that they're perfect or that it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So Totally. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's move on to uh, your new book. Uh, I want to mm-hmm. talk to you about this on uh, contemplation, embracing contemplation. Yeah. Um, there's a, uh, you know, it's an anthology, basically, different people mm-hmm. writing different chapters on, on retrieving the idea of contemplation, uh, the idea that evangelicals have kind of lost this art of contemplation or contemplative prayer, yeah. uh, you know, some historical examples, things like that. So talk through a little bit, just, just the thesis for the book, some of the definitions you use there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it really started off. This is one of those interesting projects that started in a very different forum. Um, we, the Evangelical Theological Society held a, a conference years ago. This is, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago now, where we got together a bunch of folks in the spiritual conversation, all at evangelical schools, got together and just said, let's let's have papers on contemplation because we get most attacked on this issue. We don't even talk about it much. Like, it's not like that's synonymous. <laughs> it was, you know, it was just a weird sort of thing. Like, yeah. we don't talk about it, but people attack us. And we want to know, we don't think they are on to anything. Like, we, what they're attacking is nothing we hold to be true. But we are also not talking about this issue. And so we decided to get together because we realized no one's having the conversation in evangelicalism. We all know it's in our background, whether you're Wesleyan, whether you're Reformed, like, contemplation runs deep. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny because even some of the folks, the kind of well-known folks that attack 
contemplation as a practice. If you look at the historical books they like, they're all pro-contemplation, interestingly. (laughs) (laughs) Confessions Um, or or, uh, imitation of Christ or whatever all have these contemplative aspects. Oh, well, let alone John Owen, Edwards, Baxter, you know. Um, Calvin, you know, so we we decided to, so we started there in this conversation. And what became clear is we don't all agree. Um, We all agree it's a necessary practice. We don't all agree definitionally. And in particular, we don't all agree on contemplative prayer. And let me hold off on that for a little bit and talk about that. Um, But the basic, you know, there's a couple ways to think about definitionally contemplation. Um, one of the most straightforward, it comes from Andrew Louth, the historical theologian, and he simply says, look, if you take con, the prefix con, which means um, with, and templum, which means temple, contemplation in the Christian form is just being with God in his temple. And so you think of something like Psalm 27:4, you know, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Like that call just is the call to contemplation. A more maybe obvious um, kind of calling is is Colossians 3, you know, set your minds on things above or something like Philippians 4, 8, you know, whatever is excellent, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, think about these things. And so contemplation in in its kind of most basic form is setting your mind on a reality. And what the Puritans understood, I think, that we tend not to, is there just is no debate about whether contemplation is good or not, because you can't be human and not contemplate. Right. Right. The problem isn't that we that we don't contemplate or that we should contemplate. The problem is we do contemplate. And the problem is what we contemplate. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think it's interesting when you look at because part of the, the context of contemplation is always going to be a visual register biblically. And. What's interesting about Scripture's notion of faith is that faith is opposed to sight, right? You can't have faith in sight, which is why we have faith in this age and the beatific vision in the age to come. But that what what's interesting is you always get these visual modes of talking about faith. So I think of something like 1 Corinthians 13, 12. You know, now we see through a mirror dimly. That's the sight of faith. It's it's not physical sight. It's in a, it's a dim sight. Um, then we will see face to face. So in eternity, we have a face to face vision. Here, we have this dim vision um, through a mirror. And as I've looked at our culture today, just think about our modern technologies and how everyone's walking around with a mirror that they're gazing into in their hand, contemplating. And, you know, we contemplate March Madness, or we try to uh, this year. We can't, obviously. We contemplate, you know. Um, you know, a, a better, a better job or, a, you know, a better house. Kind of, you know, we contemplate all the time for, for Christians throughout history. The call has been, how do we contemplate kind of heavenly realities? God, um, you know, set your mind on things above, but also just contemplating the kingdom realities of, of what Jesus calls this world, what he, Jesus claims this world is. Um, you know, I think about something like, you know, the last will be first and the first will be last. You don't get that through physical sight. Mm-hmm. You don't look around and say, oh, yeah, that, that's clearly true about our world. Um, you have to contemplate that reality and kind of see through it to see reality appropriately. And so contemplation has always been a kind of ascent of the mind, sometimes seen as a heart. You know, it's a, in the tradition that we, we get in debates about, you know, how these relate kind of intellect and will or intellect and affect or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
I like to think of just kind of a more integrated sense of the person. How do we kind of set our intellect and affections on the things of God? That is contemplation. But then it raises a question about contemplative prayer. And, and this is an interesting one. So one of the things that happened for me in this project, as we're using historical examples, I'm doing a constructive work, some other people are doing more historical pieces. As I started thinking about it, it it became it, it well it didn't become clear to me that kind of contemplative prayer is a thing. As I started thinking about the tradition, I'm like no one talks this way because contemplation isn't prayer. And so prayer often led you into contemplation and contemplation can kind of lead you to prayer. You know, in many ways, the end of all our exercises were seen to be contemplative. So the theological practice was for the end of contemplation. Um, biblical meditation was for the end of contemplation. Prayer, in a sense, was for the end of contemplation. And you have things like wordless prayer. And I think this is probably what happened is that at some point we took forms of prayer that were more wordless and we started calling them contemplative prayer. The problem, though, is that confuses all sorts of things. What it's led to is it's led to a bunch of people talking about contemplative prayer that have no knowledge of contemplation as a distinct practice in and of itself and the different modes of that theologically, biblically. kind of. And then it has kind of confused a bit in my mind um, how the tradition has, at least has thought about these things. And so one obvious example, if you read a book um, the called The Cloud of Unknowing, which is one of the most kind of important texts of Western spiritual kind of kind of mystical kind of writings. And the whole thing's about wordless prayer, basically. So what we would call today contemplative prayer. At no point does this author ever use the phrase contemplative prayer. Hmm. Someone like the Catholic Thomas Keating picks up that book and he then reimagines it around the phrase centering prayer. That is now seen as a mode of contemplative. So you can see how this develops, but the language has all changed. And we miss like like what's going on in the cloud of unknowing is a certain kind of form of theological apophaticism where it requires a kind of negation. And the cloud of unknowing author doesn't think you can ascend by your intellect. He thinks you can only ascend by by love, which means you almost have to kind of your intellect is the problem and you have to kind of <laughs> descend actually in the intellect so love can ascend. So there's all sorts of things we would look at that and say, well, I, I have all sorts of problems with this. But moderns don't know any of that backdrop. Mm -hmm. They just assume we've always been doing this. Right. And so I, I've wanted to clarify the difference. Um, I do think that in getting contemplation right, that'll feed into how we can talk about prayer. And so, you know, one of the ways I did that in my chapter was to talk about how we I think every Christian has prayed wordlessly from time to time. I mean, it might not have been on purpose. It's not for a lot of people. It's not a practice per se, but it's something that just happens to them. Um, words don't work anymore, whether they're mourning or they're just fatigued or, and they just kind of place themselves in the presence of God. I actually try to give a theological account of what's going on in those kinds of things and why they matter. But then you have, um, Ash Coxworth in his chapter, Ash looks at Calvin and how Calvin understood kind of contemplation through Sabbath and has all sorts of interesting ideas about how that plays out. And, and so there's the project is basically a, an attempt to clarify some of these things, to try to articulate a view that isn't what I think has happened among many Catholics, which is contemplation becomes kind of an elite practice. Right. right? We outsource that to the monks or something, whereas 
biblically, we think it's actually the most baseline of practices. It's it's more like the kind of practice the presence of God kind of a practice than it is a a special or elite sort of spiritual practice. Um, and then we wanted to just be kind of upfront about the fact that there's disagreements among among evangelicals who actually do talk about these things about how to think about them well, how to think about them biblically, historically, practically. And so we wanted, in a sense, to put something out there saying this is something if we're going to be faithful evangelicals, whether, again, that is more of the kind of purely re- reform minded, more Wesleyan minded or more just kind of generically evangelical. And if we're going to take our own tradition seriously at all, we have to take this seriously. But then also the people that are critical of this, who just wipe it away as kind of new age mysticism or something, to push back and say, you know, you're just not being faithful to your own tradition. And you're certainly not being faithful to us and what we actually say about these things. Um, And so when we do get attacked, you know, I'm fine if you attack me, just attack me based on things I actually say and believe (laughs) rather than things you've just kind of made up and project upon me. And so um, the hope is that we give people a kind of first place kind of to go and really begin wrestling through the nature of these things. Yeah, when you were when you were talking about that, too, it reminded me of the idea of meditation as well. This kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. if you talk about meditating on scripture, there are people who are like, well, that's just, you know. Uh, Eastern mysticism, New Age, whatever. And yeah. so, well, you know, maybe in that sense, meditation is emptying your mind. But if I talk about meditating on scripture, I'm saying filling your mind with the right mm-hmm. things. Right. So is yeah, there some yeah. sort of relation there between those two things? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was influenced. So early on in kind of my, my trajectory um, as someone who's kind of reformed theologically and obviously heavily influenced by Edwards, I, I wrote a little book on Edwards' view of spiritual formation called Form for the Glory of God. And in that book, I was forced to kind of grapple with this issue. Like, what is the difference between meditation and contemplation? Yeah. Because actually, they're both setting your mind on something. And and for the Puritans, you know, meditation wasn't only on Scripture, um, although it was heavily that, obviously. But you'd also meditate on doctrine, sure. like the ascension, justification by faith or something along these lines. And what became clear to me in the way they distinguish these things is that in meditation – you are always doing what Paul commends us to do in Colossians 4.2, which is to be watchful of your heart. And so you're paying attention as I'm reading scripture. What is my heart doing? What, how is my heart responding to scripture? Is it open? Is it not? Is, is, is it fearful? Am I anxious? You know, what, what's going on there? In contemplation, instead of engaging myself, when my heart does something, I kind of take it and put it aside and reset my mind on, on, on the reality I'm contemplating. And so it, it primarily has to do with how you navigate the, the time and not a kind of activity of the mind. I mean, in, by, in both, you're setting your mind on something. In meditation, you're probably setting your mind on something a little more concrete. Mm-hmm. And then so it, it might look a little different that way. Um, but in contemplation, as you set your mind on things above, as Paul says in Colossians three, well, now if, you know, if, as my mind wanders, I'm just kind of putting that aside and I'm refocusing. Whereas if my mind wanders when meditation, I I'm, I'm turning to what they would appear to call soliloquy, you know, what you take after the psalmists who would pray, Oh, my soul that is within me. So now you're kind of talking in a sense to yourself, you're kind of breaking your soul open before God and saying, look at this God, like. I can't even attend to you. Um, my mind is, is care, I have other cares in this world right now. You know, ha, you know, have mercy on me here. So you're, you're wrestling through those things with God. 
Whereas in contemplation, it is this, no, no you're reattending, you're refocusing, you're kind of resetting your mind on those things. You know, something else, I'm just, this is a stream of consciousness now as you're talking, as you're bringing all these uh, different things to mind here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about um, this wordless prayer. It makes me think of Romans yeah. 8, where Paul talks about how the Spirit kind of groans mm-hmm. on our behalf, so, you know, prays on our behalf when we don't know what to say. Um, mm-hmm. How do you talk, how do you think through and talk through that in relation to contemplation, prayer, this, yeah. you know, the Spirit speaking on your behalf, saying things you don't mm-hmm. know how to say? You know, how does that all, all work together for you? Yeah, yeah, so my understanding of these things... Um, which actually, it's funny, I first started working these out in, in the book that Jamin and I, the first book we wrote on Beloved Dust, when we were trying to think about what what is the role of Christ and the Spirit in our praying. And so in that project, and this comes through in a more academic mode in this project, but one of the things that struck me there is that too many Christians think of prayer as kind of an activity they do to get to God. Mm-hmm. and when it became clear to me biblically that prayer is something you you enter, it's not something you generate. And so the Son and the Spirit are praying for you, through you, and from within you. Like those prayers are already going on. One of the best pieces of good news about prayer is that you, the God knows you don't know how to pray. Right. <laughs> That's, That's what point, we're right? told to say, right? That's fantastic news. And the Spirit's there groaning. And yeah, this I love the Spirit's groaning is kind of um, too, it's like beneath words. It's like, it's it's the pain, the kind of the scenario of our souls are so broken. And it's, you know, the the parallel in that passage is with the earth groaning mm-hmm. like birth pains because it knows what it was created for. So too are like the spirits in our soul knows what we were created for and the spirits groaning. And so we you know, there's times in prayer when we just have to realize the words I'm using are 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 actually meant to manipulate God. They're meant to get God on my terms. I'm kind of, tr- I'm, I'm like a you know car salesman. I'm, I'm, I'm savagely trying to kind of get him on my side, get tethers in him. And sometimes I just have to stop and trust that his prayers are enough for me. Yeah. And be carried along by the Son and Spirit's intercession for me. And that, in my mind, that is that is when we we kind of find true peace in the presence of God when we can trust that His work is enough for us. Yeah, and even this idea of, you know, Christ living to intercede for us, as Scripture says, you know, I have uh, been asked before in in pastoral situations or professorial situations, this kind of idea of, um, does that mean that every time I sin, Jesus has to, like, apologize to the Father (laughs) for me or something like that? Yeah, yeah. The way I kind of describe it, and and, and you will describe it better, but kind of the way I describe it is, um, no, no, his work on the cross and his resurrection puts him, places him in this office in which he is always doing that because of those things. It's not like he's waiting yeah. for you to screw up and then jumps in and is like, God's mad at you, but now he's happy all of a sudden. It's like, no, that stuff was finished already. So his exaltation, his ascension, his standing mm. at the right hand of the Father, his priestly office, this is just happening. It's not something that's, that's yeah. a transactional type thing anymore. It's just part totally. of it. So how would you describe that? You'd describe it better, I'm sure, but... Yeah, no, that no, I think you're right about that. I mean, I think it's, you know, based on on his high priestly office, you know, because we get that, of course, in the middle of Hebrews, where we have this lengthy description of his high priestly office, and he is the anchor of our soul that has gone beyond the veil. And we are now able to, unlike Leviticus, where we get the command, don't draw near lest you die. Now in Hebrews, the imperative is draw near, you know, boldly ascend. And that bold ascent is not our work, but Christ's work. 
because it recognizes that whenever we are in the presence of God, we're in the presence of God in Christ. Yeah. And that's true of our prayers. You know, our, our prayers come. And so he, you know, in a sense, God never hears our prayers um, immediately. That is not mediatedly. He hears our prayer always through the prayers of Christ, mm-hmm. always in and through Christ himself. And so our, our prayers are, in a sense, sanctified and, and brought into the presence of God by Christ. And so Christ uh, kind of carries us into the presence of God, and our prayers are entwined and, and made his own. And so, you know, there's a there's a really profound reality going on there that is such good news for us that realize we don't know how to pray, and um, and Christ is enough for us even in our prayers, um, and that, that, that I think when we hear about Christ living to intercede for us as our great high priest, that is where I think our minds need to go, that, that, that he can, he can, not only he can, but he does already know all that we need, and he already brings it before the Father, and he has brought all of our lives before the Father already as our high priest. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction, I think, because I think sometimes we think of prayer or Christ's intercession as picking up the slack whenever we're failing rather than sort of this ongoing yeah. pre- presence of God that you are in as a person who is in Christ. And then the prayer is just totally. that's that, you know, you praying to the Lord um, is different. You know, it's not, it's not this transactional mm-hmm. car salesman thing. Like you say, you know, even though it turns into that uh, so often, but it's that, <laughs> no, this is, I mean, even if you never pray, this is still happening. You know, it's not that the that's prayer right. is, is in, in enacting these things necessarily. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some kind of habits or um, practices you would say, just some practical on the ground, people say, okay, I want to uh, not just sort of babble on like the pagans, as, as Jesus warns against, or, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I want to pray deeply, contemplatively, uh, in a way that that is meaningful and not in some mm-hmm. of the kind of problematic ways we've been taught to pray. Um, what are some, some tips, habits, uh, practices, resources that you can, can give to those who want to kind of get into this? Yeah. Um, you know, I think for... for for me and you know John Co and I who who edited this volume we actually just submitted a manuscript on prayer um, trying to answer these very questions and so for and that's a little more popular level kind of discussion and so for us you know one of the things that we constantly go back to in light of the work Christ has done in light of what the spirit is doing and what and what Christ is doing we need to be watchful in prayer and we need to to be be honest in prayer. A lot of prayers aren't very honest. And, and one of the images I think of is if you think of the Holy Spirit groaning, like there's some there's a profound realism to the spirits praying for us. He's groaning from our depths. And I imagine that groaning kind of coming in one of God's ears, so to speak. And then my prayer is coming in another ear like if we're praying this really cleaned up, tidy, neat, like, hey, God, doing great. <laughs> just giving you an update or whatever. And the, the spirit is just like, yeah. you know, groaning. And like, how? what is that stereo sound to God? Like, you know, so I think the, the spirit's work and presence is calling us into something deeper. And that just is more honest. And that means we're going to have to really grapple with all the ways we actually don't think God wants to hear what's going on in our lives, how we how we really deeply believe. I mean, most Christians I meet deeply believe that what God wants from them is for them to get their act together. Mm-hmm. And that's just as true in prayers anywhere else. 
Um, and so he, they think he's kind of sitting there, kind of rolling his eyes, going, oh, goodness sakes, you just said the father died for your sins. Get your act together. You know, it's like, you know, it's we and we get lost in in this kind of expectation, like of what we hope will happen, of what we imagine God is uh, is like when we're praying to him and all these things. And we have to we have to pray to the God who is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father and who's groaning from our depths. And we have to pray to the God who has taken on our sins on the cross and has nailed them to the cross and has ascended in our stead. And to pray to that God is to pray to God in reality and never in fantasy. And our temptation is always to turn to fantasy rather than reality. And so, you know, when we when we do those things, one of the things that will happen, and I think, is we'll, we'll 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 gain a sense of this kind of watchfulness of our hearts, and we'll begin to see what some of our deep subconscious theological beliefs are. I, I have a lot of students who have who really understand the doctrine of the atonement until they pray, right. and then prayer becomes a time for them to try to atone for their sins, mm-hmm. right? And and that's the problem when we don't talk about the more subjective dimension of Christian theology is we think we can just memorize the right answers, do the theological work well enough, and it's just somehow by magic going to transform our life with God. Um, We have to attend to what is actually going on in our hearts when we come before God and what we're actually doing there. And so it's, it's giving ourselves not only the the watchfulness and the space to do it, but even the time to kind of recognize these things. Um, I, I do wonder for people, you know, if you just consider what are some of the prayers that you have taken on and why? Um, you know, I I will often digress, not that this is a bad form of praying, but I will often maybe only intercede for a short period of time when I just don't want to be in God's presence. I don't, I don't want to experience me praying and falling asleep again. I don't want to experience me praying, my mind wandering, telling God, I'm sorry. And trying, you know, it's like, and, and I'm, and I'm not allowing myself to kind of see the truth that when I do come into God's presence, the truth of my heart comes out. And that's a good, because I need to see the reality of who I am in his presence. Um, and so I think I think a lot of people stop praying because they feel like they're failures. They feel like they're bad at it. And they have this sneaking suspicion there's other people who are just good at it. Yeah. Um, and, and it's and it's because they still think that prayer is primarily a place to perform. And it's not a place to be known. And so I, I would say if if you could take that and reframe it and then just bring your life, whatever it is, God knows. It's not like you're surprising God. How can you how can you trust he's already praying for all of these things? How can that actually give me the 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 kind of um, foundation to just embrace that reality? Yeah, it's interesting when you talked about, um, you know, falling asleep when praying or, you know, uh, looking at other people. Yeah, you do realize that when you hear other people pray, they are performing for you at some level. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah. Have you ever prayed with people around and not thought the whole time about how you sounded when you prayed? So comparing totally. yourself to other people praying out, out loud is just comparing yourself to somebody else's performance, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. So how does the how does the communal aspect of prayer kind of fit into all this, right? So there is this sense in which mm-hmm. we should be praying together, and, and there's always going to be the, the, the messiness and the performance aspect of it and everything else. But how would you how would you think through some of that? Yeah, you know, this is, you know, one of the one of the practices 
you know, that my department does. So every two weeks we have an executive team meeting. There's about, there has been five. We just added two, no, two new hires this year. So there's seven of us that meet now. And um, the, the way we pray together has become my favorite way to pray. And it's similar to my church. My church has a very lengthy prayer time in every service mm-hmm. where we do a lengthy prayers of the people where we're bringing all our prayers together and we are, we are, you know, we are praying corporately together. But one of the the practices that we've taken on that I've just fallen in love with is instead of, because we've all been in like small groups where it says, Oh, does anyone have any prayer requests? Right. And there's like two people and it's the same two people. And, you know, and instead of that, the guy, my boss, actually John Coe, who wrote, who coded this book with me, um, he, he runs these meetings and he's the way he does it is, I want you to pray about your life, about your worries, about anything going on here in our department, with our students, with our university. And I want you to pray anything you want us to pray for with you. And so now we come in and we all, we're actually offering our prayers corporately together and simultaneously lifting up one another in prayer. And then, of course, as we go on, the prayers that were prayed before are caught up into the other prayer. And that has been because because now it's not me saying, oh, could you pray this for me? Now it's let me bring what I think I need to pray for before the Father. And and you can then discern ways that you can be with me in that yeah, and you can pray for me in that. That that has been a real gift to me. Um I, I have found it. And you begin to hear things in people's lives you didn't know. They, they probably wouldn't have mentioned. Or you see the things that are on their hearts, the worries they have, the fears they have, the um, you know the family situations that they're struggling with. And, and so that has been a real good. And, you know, one of the things that struck me as well in terms of intercession, intercession, I, I think, again, is one of those areas we just – we, we kind of have magical thinking about. I, I think a lot of our, our magical thinking comes in prayer. Like, like prayer just becomes kind of a magical formula. So no one think no one says this out loud, but we kind of think if I pray the right way, then it'll just happen, right? If, if it doesn't happen, maybe I didn't say it the right way. Maybe I didn't, you know, maybe if I pray better, whatever that means, harder, I grip my teeth or something. And with intercession, I and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but like you're, you're scrolling through a, you know, I don't know, Twitter or Facebook, someone asked for prayer which immediately annoys you because you don't even know who they are to begin with. And now you feel guilty, right? Because you want to just go right through, oh, okay. And you're just like, God, pray that person. Yeah, you know, you kind of move on. And what struck me recently is that, you know, with when, when that happens to me, and even in intercession in general, there's often a threefold neglect in my own heart. There's a threefold neglect of presence. I'm not really present to God in the intercession. I'm not present into myself and I'm not present to the person. And, you know, one of the most profound things I think that we need to grapple with, and Bonhoeffer talks about this a bit, is that in the spirit, we can be present even when we're not physically present. And and Paul talks this way. And sometimes I think we we just kind of, you know, a lot of times hermeneutically, we just shift to Paul's hallmark moments and we think he's making these, well, that's nice, Paul. you know, <laughs> it's like, no, he actually means that. Like, he actually means he's present in the spirit, you know. And, you know, for me now, it's become when I see a prayer request or I, I have a prayer request and from someone that I want to pray for, the first thing I want to know is, Lord, Lord, how can I, how can I be present to this person in your spirit and their plight? Which is I actually have to enter into it. And then I'm going to have to navigate a little bit myself because now because I'm entering into it, 
my relationship with them comes in. And so maybe there's ways that I'm envious of them. Maybe there's ways I kind of think, you know, they really just need to become more like me and their life would be better. And I, you know, I want to pray that way. So I've got to be, I got to be aware of what's actually going on. I've got to be present in that sense to myself as I'm with them. But then I actually have to be present to God with this person and be open. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Like the, you know what this person needs. You know this plight. Lord, Lord, be with them here as I am being with them here. And, and I think, you know, as, as we record this in the middle of a quarantine, I think it's it's important to remember that that, you know, for the Christian social distancing means something different in the spirit, that we truly are one in Christ in the spirit and no no amount of physical distance changes that reality and that our prayers for one another and in fact with one another can kind of take on that reality of, of being present in the spirit. Yeah, it's good. The idea of uh, one spirit, one baptism, one body actually means something uh, concrete that's right. and meaningful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a saying. Like, it actually has real practical effect. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'm a good Christian, so I don't struggle with this stuff. But there are people who do, I'm sure. So. Yeah, so that's, we're doing this for them. Yeah, that's right. This is all for them. <laughs> I've heard I've heard people fall asleep in prayer. I, I, I yeah, certainly have never. <laughs> well, I, personally, that doesn't happen to me, but... Uh, well, Kyle, thanks so much for hopping on, man. I enjoyed it. Always really encouraging and, and inspired and challenged by you. So thanks so much for doing it. Oh, thanks, Brandon. It's so good to be with you, man.